Kim Schmidt, Executive Editor of Farm Equipment here. Welcome to the first official episode of our newest Farm Equipment podcast series, Our Dealer Story. To kick the series off, we chose to sit down with Gary Reynolds, the second generation owner of Reynolds Farm Equipment, a seven-store John Deere dealership with stores in Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky. He's just the kind of man that everybody wanted to be around Mac Reynolds. One, he was honest, strong man of faith. I go back to when he started the business, he and my mother started the business on $18,000 in December of 55. And by spring of 56, hogs went down to $9. In fact, farmers were even killing the pigs because they couldn't afford to raise them. I know my mother looked at my dad and said, Mac, what did you do with our money? We should have stayed on the farm. But they got through that period of time and with hard work and strong faith, and so it all works out. That was Gary talking about his parents, Mac and Arlene Reynolds, who started the business. I sat down with Gary during the National No-Tillage Conference in Indianapolis. Today, the third and fourth generations are involved in the daily operation of the dealership, but Gary recognizes that it'll take more than family to keep the business successful. Before we head over to Gary, I wanted to thank our sponsor, HBS Systems, a multi-generational company that for over 30 years has provided leading edge systems and software technology designed specifically for ag and construction equipment dealers. Thanks for making the newest podcast series possible. Okay, let's get things going. Here's my conversation with Gary Reynolds, owner of Reynolds Farm Equipment, based in Atlanta, Indiana. To kick off, can you talk a little bit about how your parents got started in the dealership and the early story of Reynolds Farm Equipment? Yes, we just celebrated our 63rd birthday. Congratulations. Uh, my folks started the business, my mother and my father, and one young man. So there was three employees and straight off the farm, milking cows. My dad had allergies pretty bad and had to look for business, thought about a hardware store, and then it became available to John Deere through a friend of his at church said, hey, I own the John Deere agency, but I'm wanting to retire. He's just the kind of man that everybody wanted to be around Mac yeah. Reynolds. One, he was honest, strong man of faith. And I, in fact, because I go back to when he started the business, he and my mother started the business on $18,000 in December of 55. And by spring of 56, hogs went down to $9. In fact, farmers were even killing the pigs because they couldn't afford to raise them. And I know my mother looked at my dad and said, Mac, what did you do with our money? We should have stayed on the farm. But uh, they got through that period of time and with hard work and, and a strong faith. And so it all works out. So fast forward, uh, they did that. It's been great ever since. And so uh, I'm second generation. My oldest daughter is third generation coming on. She is actually president of our company now, but she's been there 30 years, so I guess she's kind of earned the right <laughs> to, to be president. Right. When your parents bought the dealership, how old were you? I was 12 years old when my folks started the business, and I was a machinery rat. Okay. I, uh, I couldn't have, they couldn't have gotten anything that was any better, that was close to ag-related on the farm, because I liked the farm life. So I was only 12 years old, but I knew one thing that as soon as school was over, my dad was counting on the watch how many minutes it took before I got up to the store and started doing pressure washing machinery. 12 and 13 years old, you did things that you wouldn't allow anybody to do now today, but <laughs> I loved every minute of it, and I've enjoyed every minute all 63 years. 
There's been some times like the 80s, which almost swallowed us. I just purchased most of the business from my father right ahead of the 80s. Good timing. And wow, I thought I was going to get swallowed up. And by the grace of God, I didn't. How long had you been in any sort of management role before purchasing? I'd pretty well been in a management role eight or 10 years, but I didn't have a strong enough financial background. I did a little bit of college stint, but uh, not enough to really run a business. I'll be very honest with you. And uh, it just started to swallow us up. And I, in fact, uh, what was worse about the 80s, in the 60s and 70s, when I just started selling, was kind of really participating in the business full time and very active in selling and management. The harder you worked, the way things became more successful. Mm -hmm. During the 80s, it was not harder. You had to be smarter. And I will be honest, I wasn't prepared for the 80s. I just didn't know enough about business, but I had a good CFO at the time, and he actually taught me some financials. And we made it through. Like, like I say, I don't know how, but we did. And so as I stepped forward, I realized that that strength in a company is very vital. And so all of our executive team, I would say, is fairly strong on financials today. Were you one store still? in the 80s or had you grown at that point? We'd had the second store, but uh, we were basically predominant one major store. That was one thing that's probably changed through the years is the acquisitions. It used to be you picked them off one at a time. Somebody decided an elderly couple, I want them, I'm time to retire. And you picked them off one at a time. Now, a lot of the mergers and acquisitions you hear about in consolidation is multi-stores being picked off. and so. One, that takes a lot different financial strength to be able to do that. Uh, you'd be able to absorb one years ago, you know, you, you had 500000 or a million dollars and you absorbed a store and at least you could work it off and make it pay. But today, now you're in the 20, 30, 40 million dollars mm -hmm. to pick off a, a bunch of stores. It's, it's, just, it's different. It's not a small task. No. <laughs> Going back a little bit, you have a brother and a sister? Yes, I had an older brother and a younger sister, and they worked there for years. I would say I'm the one that had the passion. They were very good to me, but they didn't have the same passion for the business, and I saw that it had to be my livelihood. And so uh, during the 80s, I decided that that's when I had gone to my father and said, I have to have majority control. At least if I'm going to have a chance to make it in this business and do well, I got to have it on my shoulders, but I also have to have enough control that you can make decisions on a day that may not be popular with the rest of the family. And so we worked it out, but our relationship's been good and both of them retired from the business. Uh, one's older and one's younger, and they retired fairly young uh, in their 50s. But uh, our relationship is good. I, I learned a lot from my older brother, even though it wasn't as much about the implement business. Was your father still involved in the business in the 80s? Um, yeah, but not much. My mother was out of it, and my father, uh, when we started buying some stores, unfortunately he had a stroke, a heart attack, and uh, now he got through that, but it was never the same. He didn't have the same desire to start keep expanding and buying stores. But I learned a lot from him. How was being in kind of a tough business situation and still raising your family and getting through that? It is. I do remember somebody telling me years ago that if you take all the ugly stuff of business home with you, 
and put it at the kitchen table, why would your kids want to ever get in that business? And so even if I had a stressful day and I was raising my two daughters at the time, we didn't talk about business much at the table. Okay. I just left that for work. Because my father had already told me one other very important thing when I got to managing things and I was really worried about them through the night. He said, anytime you get into a problem that you're worried about and you can't sleep, I want you to just wake up, get actually get up out of bed, go into the bathroom, look in the mirror and say, what can you do about it at two o'clock in the morning? <laughs> and he said, then you'll go back to bed because you'll sit there and worry about it and there's nothing you can do about it till the next morning. Yeah. So I really followed that. I didn't worry about things till the next day. My wife didn't hear about them, my daughters didn't hear about them, and oh, I'm saying occasionally they might have, but hopefully I think they found enough that was all positive. They're both working in the business today, and so it, they didn't find it too negative. Uh, I have a former accountant. She would tell you today that, Gary, I don't know how you got through the 80s. It was paycheck to paycheck, and it really was. Every Friday I was just wondering if I was going to have enough to pay everybody. But there always was enough. And I think she would tell you today that I taught her about a little bit of lesson about faith. And maybe I didn't believe it as strong as I should have, <laughs> but I put on the front to her anyway that I did. And Friday there would come the money. There'd be enough in the account to make sure we covered all the checks. My dad was that kind of a person and you can't control all the things that's going on around you. You just can't do that. Be control what you do. Mm -hmm. And that's what's important. And so uh, my faith has been very strong. Uh, uh, God has been good. I failed him many a times, but he's never failed me. You hear a lot of times that a lot of new, younger people coming up into management leadership roles and dealerships. We didn't live through the, you know, we lived through the 80s, but we were kids. We weren't running a business. We don't know what those struggles were like. You know, how do you help the younger generation kind of learn the lessons you learned without really having experienced them? Well, you just help them be stronger financed. We, we have scorecard meetings. And what we do is every month, we have a scorecard that we've built. It's for us. It's not for every other dealer. It's for rentals. What makes us successful and what we think is the right things. And we go to each store and the management team of that store, the store manager, the parts manager, the service manager, or anybody else that we think is important at that store, set in on those scorecard meetings and they get to see financial revenues, they get to see the down and dirty. We're very transparent today. Uh, our store managers all know what they make, they know what the corporation makes. We ask for confidentiality, but, but we're very transparent and, and don't regret a bit of it. People can know what I make and it's not a big, mm -hmm. it would never bother me because I know I'm worth it. and. Uh, uh, just as I know they're worth what they get. So I, I will say today that that's made us a better company. And when we, we think about uh, leadership in the, these companies, it's hard for them. Sometimes uh, they can only grasp what they are doing. It's hard for them to grasp the big picture. So what I, we try to tell them is, guys, is, this is not rocket science. We're selling tractors, we're fixing tractors, we're selling parts for tractors. Now, I don't want to put it too simply because behind that there's people that do are, are rocket scientists. A good technician is a rocket scientist, mm -hmm. a good parts man is. 
I don't mean that, but what we do, we're just in the people business. That's all we are. And it's one relationship at a time every day. What do you think it is about your parents that's still part of the business today? Well, I know what it is. And, uh, and I'm glad you asked that question because uh, when I think about the things, now it was implied then, it wasn't spoken, but the things were is honesty, integrity, hard work, and a strong faith. I never missed a day seeing my father read the scriptures because he said he always had to have them. He always had to glean something from them. So I know what it was, and it was implied within the organization that that's what Mac Reynolds stood for. We'll go full circle on that here in a few minutes, but that is one of the things that's the major change even in our company, I've left it to be implied. So when I got those attributes from my father, I hope most of them, I realized that I always thought our employees knew that this is the way we would do things, this is the way it's gonna be done. And now, as I go forward and start learning more about business and learning more about what it's gonna take, we're very explicit. In fact, we're having our yearly employee meeting this Friday and they will know exactly that it's those kind of key things that uh, integrity, honesty, and we don't stand for anything less than that. And there's not room for it. And mm -hmm. it's time killers to have anything else in your business that's not that way. So where I used to think being implied was strong enough, no. People want to know. They deserve to know what you stand for. How, how are they going to respond if they don't? They need to know the expectations. Right, expectations. So Angela's been in the business 30 years, you said? So yes. that puts her coming into the business in the 80s. Yeah, she played uh, some perfunctory roles, I would call them at that time. And it's only been in the last year and a half to two years that I could tell she was ready, but she told me she was ready to take on a bigger role. And when you have our corporate headquarters, which we have around 75 people there at our corporate headquarters, that's the hardest store to manage. And the reason it is, is because you have all the other corporate staff, a lot of them there, and people are always looking, who, who do I report to? And so uh, we actually failed uh, at our corporate headquarters of having good leadership. And finally she said, you know, I want a chance at this. I want to manage the corporate headquarters. So she said that about a year and a half, two years ago, and. It's been great. She's got a good camaraderie with the service personnel, but, but she manages a little bit like I did, and that's managed by wandering around. If her office work is a little slow and there's a little problem in the parts department, you'll see her out there in her high heels putting away parts, but she's not too proud to do it. And, and everybody knows that it's not a show with her. She sincerely aims to help them, and, and she's respected. I think that's the most important thing. She was in charge of paying commissions to all the salesmen. So when you have about 25, 30 people, they want to trust that person. Mm -hmm. And I think that she had every salesman's trust that they were going to get every dime that they would deserve. So I think that's what's bode her well for being manager. She's living that integrity that, right. and trust. Right. Uh, that is value correct. Too. When did you know that she was going to be... I'd, I'll right be honest word. with you, I, I, that's a very good question. I can't say that I, I really never thought that she would have it because she was a very strong project person. You give her a project to do and she'll get it done and beat it to death till she gets it done. And I was never thought that she would have the leadership capabilities and that was shame on me. 
because that's hard in family-run businesses mm -hmm. or family-owned businesses, I should say, to probably recognize when somebody's got the ability to do that. And probably I could see it coming, but when she told me, I knew she'll be successful because she, when she decided to go out on a limb, I knew she was ready. She just doesn't want to lose. I would like to take more credit for it, but I, I can't <laughs> because I probably, if anything, held her back because she did her jobs well and they were important jobs. And that's, that's the other thing that I've, and some of my executive team that we've put together, we do a lot of promoting within, even when it hurts. Mm -hmm. You know, it hurts to take a good technician off the road and have him do something else. It hurts to take a, a good counterparts man out, put him in some kind of management or put him in the sales department because you need him at the parts counter. Those things hurt, but it's only fair. And that's why we have people that are still there after 40 years. And I'm very fortunate because in a lot of 20 year employees, when I look back at it now, and I, and I, I will say this in a couple days when we hand out awards for years of service, somebody that's been with you 30 to 40 years, they gave you your, their life. Mm -hmm. That's what they did. They gave you their whole life. And if you don't appreciate that, yeah, there's something wrong with you. We'll get back to the Reynolds story in a minute, but first I wanted to say thanks to HBS Systems, the sponsor of this series. To learn more about HBS's equipment dealership management systems, visit www.hbssystems.com. After that, head over to farm-equipment.com for the latest industry news. Now back to the story of Reynolds Farm Equipment and what it means to be part of a family-run business. Gary also talks more about the challenges of finding a store manager for their corporate headquarters and what he hopes his legacy will be. What's it been like previously working side by side with your father and now working side by side with your daughters? Well, a lot of similarities. Uh, my dad uh, and I, we, we, unfortunately we probably thought too much alike uh, <laughs> to be good for each other when we figured a deal. Uh, when I was selling a lot, the two of us had come up within a nickel. I mean, it was just, it was uncanny that if a guy wanted to trade a tractor, we had the same number or combine, whatever. So uh, those things were nice. And, and my father probably gave me more freedom to run the business than I deserved, than I was educated for, and that I, than I really deserved. And he let me make some big blunders. We have a COO that has been with me 20 years, and he was a young man that came fresh out of high school and has developed probably one of the best COOs in the country. I'd put him up against any major dealer that's got 30, 40 stores. Um, and I know he and I didn't agree, and I probably gave him more freedom than I even gave my own daughter. Um, uh, and I, in fact, I know that's a fact. And I told him one day, I said, you're gonna make mistakes and uh, I'm gonna watch you some of them, some of them I'll stop you and some of them I'll watch you make them because I always reminded him one thing, that a coach of a good basketball team, if he wins two thirds of his games, he, he's almost a coach there for life. So if you're batting 600 in a baseball, I'm sure you get to keep your job or if you're winning that much, uh, as a coach, you get to keep your job. So hit two thirds of the time, that's pretty good. Now you hope you grow and do better, 
and he does. I'd say 90-some percent of the time he hits well. And I probably looked at him more, unfortunately, as my son in some ways than my own daughter as the next leadership, but they have different skill sets. When we have an executive team, we have a COO, we have a CFO, and we have a CEO. And all three of those are outside of the company. They're not related to the family at all, but they had strong skill sets. And But my daughter, Angela, she's the one in that executive meeting, make sure that we're on target with our core values. The others are very honest people, and the, I, I couldn't be more pleased to have what I have in the in management team, but still, she's the one that keeps us straight and narrow because yeah. that's what the family always wanted to do. From the big blunders you've had over the years that your father let happen, what's one of the biggest things you've learned from those mistakes? Well, probably one of them, I, and, I, and I, but I did it a couple times. <laughs> it took a while I, to I learn wasn't, it. I wasn't a good <laughs> student, so, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he was around for one of them, and he was a little bit involved, so I could pass some of it on to him, but I, I really can't and that is investing in businesses that really that we should have stayed out of. I, I say this, the fact that if we wanted a bigger business, we wanted to grow it, just do what you do more of. Um, we should have sold more iron or found a way to sell more iron or, or market more used equipment. But if you want to do that or just buy another store, but if you want to get bigger diversifying, isn't necessarily, I think, very strong, the strongest thing to do because it cost me, I did that twice, and they both cost me a lot of money and some financial freedom today. You weren't an expert at it. We, we weren't an expert at it and didn't take, and I didn't take control. I was only a minority, but I was, we were the finance people behind it, mm -hmm. but we were the minority control and never do that, never do that. If you got money involved, you, you make sure that person is either doing it like you want to do it or take control or try to assume some control or keep the financial control. What are some of the, the mistakes you've let others make now that you guys have learned from? Yeah, I've, I've let people probably make some changes where they get, I'd say my CEO, before the CEO came along, I'd say that some of the biggest changes is, is putting people in positions that they're going to fail or they have a strong chance of failing, not reading the whole situation well enough to realize that those people will probably fail. And if you put them in a role of management and they fail, now they affect other people. Mm -hmm. And I think that was, that's probably the big areas. We're better at that today, but collectively as a management team, we're better. When we make those major changes, and you don't always hit them right, even with five of us making the decision. <laughs> And because uh, that is one thing uh, we make clear in the executive team that I've made clear that I, I'm probably stealing it from somebody else, that if all five of us agree, I don't need the other four of you. So we, we have good banter. We have a robust dialogue between us and it works out good. How do you guys look for managers or look for people in management leadership roles? What are the criteria you guys base that on? Well, first of all, core values is number one. Um, are they the type of person that's gonna be able to go out there and make a decision and run the company, run maybe if they're a store manager, can they run it by uh, like we would? Think like an owner, 
That is one of our core values. And so we want even our a line tech or a parts person, if you're there with a customer and you're, you've got a decision to make, just, just do what you think Gary would do. And uh, if it costs you money, it costs you money. But just think like an owner. And that is one of our keys and that's one of our cores. So, But in leadership and management, one of our top three things for 2019 is to train our managers more is to get them in more leadership classes. Some we want to have our, our, on our own uh, and spend time with them, but that is probably the one of the top three for 2019. Okay. Is some of the fourth generation now working in the business? Yes, Angela's daughter, uh, my first granddaughter, she's our HR director. Oh, wow. And doing a great job, in fact, uh, she's, she's a chip off the old block on her, from her mother in the fact that she saw that if she wanted to grow in our company, she had to look where there was going to be a good opening. And she had graduated from college, and we'd gone through an HR director that we, we just it didn't fit. And so she saw that, and she went back to college and got her master's in HR. And, okay. and so... Uh, I don't know what you call it, but, but anyway, that's yeah. what she did. And so she recognized the need, and she went to, back to college. And so she just gave me my first great-grandson. Congratulations. Uh, so uh, two or three years ago, and gonna give me another great-granddaughter, so. So the fifth it, generation's ready. <laughs> so, but no, Victoria, my oldest granddaughter, does, does very well. And I think she's respected for what she does, mm -hmm. too as an HR. I mean, I, I think they recognize her honesty and that uh, when she tells them about a medical uh, benefit or something like that, it's just not malarkey. She believes it. I'm a very lucky guy. Yeah. Not bad to have the whole family almost all around. So that's great. Yeah. But I always think about family-run businesses. Be careful what you want for. I, I, our, family, our business would be terrible if it was just run the family. Uh, we don't have all the skill sets. I mentioned the three people that was on the executive team outside of family, and they have a strong skill set that none of our family members or, I, or myself would even have. I know that my CEO that's been there about three or four years is a lot better CEO than I'll ever be. And so when you start skipping forward 10, 15 years, and you think about legacies, what do you think? Well, I used to think when I was managing the company that Hamilton County wasn't big enough and the state of Indiana wasn't big enough. And then I realized that's not my legacy. My legacy is, is that we're going to be run by very good people. And so when I got that mindset that it wasn't about me, that it's about the next person that's going to run the company, uh, I'm a lot better than I've, I've ever been. And so uh, our CEO, our CFO, COO, that are very strong people, very good people, well entrenched in the business, but they have skill sets again that family members wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. And and I'm always reminded about family-run businesses. There's dysfunctional families out there, right? So there's dysfunctional businesses, and and they can be just as easy dysfunctional in a family-run business as anything else. Mm -hmm. and, and I realize that. I, I think we just have to be very careful. Now, we do a quarterly luncheon for new hires, and uh, the executive team sets in on that, and we get to know them all. 
and we talk about how they like their new job. We also talk about what's going on in their families, you know, uh, families, how many kids they got, what do they like mm -hmm. to do for hobbies and so forth. We talk about that. One thing that comes up resounding every time we have a quarterly luncheon is, oh, it's, it's more like family. And somebody will even say, well, it's a family-run business. Well, what does that mean to you? What does family-run business mean to you? Be careful. Guys that have 50 locations can have more of a family atmosphere. Mm -hmm. What family really means is you care about each other. And that's what you care. You care about when they go home. You care when their wife gets sick or their children get sick or, or they've lost a spouse or they've lost a, a family member. That's what that means. Mm -hmm. You really care about them. And that can happen. So it doesn't take a family-run business necessarily to get that To run done, like a family. To run like a family. So that's what they really mean when they say family-run business. They want to be treated like family. Yeah. Right. When did you realize that it was important to bring in people outside the family to the business? Well, one, I, I, I knew that when I hired the COO, I hired him in and he worked part-time in the parts counter. Within a year, he was a parts counter manager. Within another year, he was a corporate parts manager. Another year, he was a store manager. And then another year, he was the general manager of all the stores uh, because he had that unusual talent and he had the passion for the business. Mm -hmm. He just loved the business. And you can tell how well they love it by how they get to work on time. He was never late. And I could tell then you like the business. If people start some straggling in, they're probably they're not passion is not there. And so when we saw that success and then we was looking for a CFO, he and I was and we got to looking, we didn't want just a bean counter, we wanted a different skill set. So we had a gentleman come to us that was working for a, an auditing firm, uh, in fact did our work, and, but he had a skill set and a love for computers and technology. And that would just hit us to a T because we were wanting to do more online work. So we went after our CEO, we didn't go after him as a CEO, we went after him as a chief marketing officer but he ended up having the skill set of a, a strong leader. So sometimes they fall on your lap and sometimes you actually do go out and recruit. And, and I think it taught us a valuable lesson though, that if, if we need a store manager, if we were to, we would look within first, do we have that skill set? But if we don't, we're, we'll, we'll go on the outside because okay. that person at the top, those people that have the right skill sets are just too valuable. They make it happen. You can't force someone into a role no, that they're not no. fit for. And entitlement shouldn't get them there either. Mm -hmm. Just because you've been there 30 years or just because, well, I've done everything else here, why shouldn't I do that? Can you talk a little bit about the new headquarters in Atlanta, what building the new store was like, a little bit about the Combine Cafe and that dream? I've uh, been forced enough. Um, my father built uh, one new building in his life, and then I was fortunate enough to have built two or three uh, new facilities. But we went for our corporate headquarters. Um, we had to think about logistics, how good it is to get from other stores to it, because we knew it would be our corporate headquarters. Also, are we going to build it for the future, for the next 20 years? 
Are we going to put it in the right location? And all those things were a lot harder when you start building a facility for a corporate headquarters mm -hmm. that's uh, about 80,000 square feet wow. because you've got quite an investment there and it has to work. In fact, the first six months, I wasn't sure we did choose the right place, but it finally came around. But uh, one thing about it, I've always had a passion of kind of about food. I was mess sergeant in the Army, and maybe that's what drove it, I don't know. But I've always loved to serve people. I love serving people. I love doing that for people. And so I almost did it when I built a store at Muncie, Indiana, it was to put a cafe in. And at the last minute, I looked around and said, well, there's all kind of eateries up and down that road because we were at the edge of town. Uh, I better just stay out of it. And probably was a smart thing. But when we got out in the middle of the country with this new corporate headquarters, and I thought how many people are going to be there on a regular basis, I wanted to try it. And it's not been without some growing pains, but mm -hmm. it's a great cafe. Yesterday we had all of our store managers in. It was nice to be able to just put an order in down at the cafe, let them deliver it upstairs to the meeting. We didn't all get in vehicles and run and leave and go trying to find a place to eat, uh, which we'd have to drive where we are to get that done. And so I, I won't tell you it's a money maker. I, I probably take a little beating on it uh, from some of the executive team, but what it's done far as relationship, it's brought customers in and sometimes customers come in to talk to a salesman, even though they may only get there two or three times a year. They'll, our salesman will buy their lunch, and, but I'll get to go up to the table and see them and talk to them, which otherwise, if they were out in some restaurant out 20 miles away, I wouldn't do that. and may never see that customer in the course of a year and some of them that I should be seeing. So I think it's been, I can't always pay for it in dollars and cents, uh, <laughs> But I, I really think it's been very valuable for us. How have customers responded to it? Real well, real well. In fact, if, it's, if we have to close for a day or two for a reason, uh, that's one thing that's probably the worst thing about it. It's not big enough that we have enough staff that if somebody gets sick, uh, that you sometimes we have to close it if the chef and his wife both get sick. Yeah. Uh, we have to close it for the day, and that's not a good thing. But we make it work. Yeah. But it's, it's been a good thing. I, I think as far as I can look back on many customers that have bought a lot of equipment off of me that I've got to sit down with them either for lunch or just go by their table and talk to them that I would have never gotten to see. And I think that's pretty valuable. How have you guys approached succession planning for the dealership and planning for the future? You know, that is one nice, one thing that's changed a lot, but it's it's, and maybe it's for the best, but succession planning used to be in your uh, charge. Mm -hmm. And now with, with uh, dealing with big corporations, succession planning doesn't always, you're not in charge of it. And uh, I realize that. And so what we've decided, we know that maybe at times we're not Deere's dealer of choice. So what we've decided the last few years, we're going to be the dealer of choice. Mm -hmm. We're going to be the one that Deere wants in business for some way, even if we're part of something bigger or not. And so that's why we're very strong on hitting metrics, not only market share to do to appease the large corporations, but also to be the right thing for us. 
And so uh, we hit certain metrics. And so I want to say that what's been good, we've ever since we've taken that approach in the last three or four years, we're, we're one of John Deere's leader club dealers. That's 35 uh, top dealers. Uh, we're, we're not one of the biggest, but I think our numbers speak well for themselves. So that's how we've decided to approach succession plan. Let's just be the best dealer out there as we can be, and then let's just see if, if uh, how Deere wants us to fit in with their, their big picture. Angela's been there for 30 years. Teresa's been in the business for a long time too. Do you think the family will continue to all to be present in the business? I hope so. Uh, I think some of them will be present even for the business sales because I think they carry their weight. Uh, they do a good job. Uh, they'd have a hard time. They might. They could find a store manager better than Ange. I'm sure they could, but it'd be hard. So, uh, uh, and she's just got a valuable skill sets uh, that. Uh, I think are valuable to anybody that owns the company. And uh, while I would like to see her be a part of something even bigger, that's fine as long as she has some ownership. But if it's not, I think she will fare well in it. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing lasts forever. That's, that's one of my statements. My dad did, told me that, and nothing lasts forever. About when you think you've got everything just right, all of a sudden, it's not like you think it is, and, and the next 10 years are not like you think they are. And I understand what Deere's after. This consolidation thing is a big problem. It's a big concern. Mm -hmm. It's a concern to the American farmer. Yeah. And so uh, Deere has to make sure when those consolidation things, and, and there's been articles recently written about the consolidation, and, and Deere's probably got double the consolidation than any of its competitors. We hear about it from some of our farmers that say, boy, I hope you don't sell, I hear that. But the truth of it is, at the end of the day, they want to be treated right and fair. And if whoever, if you own 50 stores or five stores, if you get that job done right and you treat somebody fair, then you'll just have to let the chips fall where they may. Earlier we had talked a little bit about the challenge of finding the right person to manage the Atlanta store, which is the corporate headquarters. Can you talk about that a little bit more, expand on what the challenge was in filling that role? Yeah, in fact, I hate to even embarrass myself, but I even had that job for about six months. Thought I could do it, and I couldn't do it. The challenge is that when you have a place like the corporate headquarters and you have so many people there, we also have a lot of corporate managers at that location and uh, other people with leadership skills and leadership roles. Who do they look to? Who do they look to? Do they look to the sales manager? Do they look to me because I happen to be there? Do they look to our COO because his office is there? Does it, do they look to the CEO uh, because they're going to come in contact with them? And you just it's very hard getting rid of that confusion. So it was very hard. So when my daughter stood up and said, let me have this job, I was elated because I think she had the right skill set. Her skill set came along. I'm not your friend. I'm not your best buddy, but I'll go to bat for you. And I, they recognized that, and they knew she would. And they knew she'd do whatever it took, and that she wouldn't be a yes person in the meetings, that she would express her point of views, and, and she's not a yes person. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I, I think that it was very hard. It's a hard role for her. Uh, it's a hard role for anybody. Mm -hmm. In fact, like I said, we had a couple other people, and they failed at it. 
And so she's the first one that's come along out of about three or four people that's been very successful there. And she'll tell you she's got ways to go. But uh, there's just those aspects of the business she never spent time in. She never spent time working with the sales manager over deals and those kind of things. Whereas in our other stores, some of our store managers play the lead role in sales. She doesn't necessarily do that, but she's got so many other things she does. She probably plays a bigger role in communication, those kind of things, because she's paid their commissions and so forth. What do you want Reynolds Equipments or your legacy to be? My legacy to be that when I'm gone, and it can be any time, um, I want to say, guys, he really had some good people there. And there are, those store managers are all good people, and they perform with the core va same core values that Mac Reynolds believed if they know him or my core values. So that's, that's what I want him to, the, my legacy to be. It's, it's pretty simple. I just, I just want people to think that, hey, the right people are in charge. They got good people and they do a good job. And I want them compensated fair. I hope they think I'm not, I was never cheap. We, we do know that we probably pay on the higher scale in most of our positions, whether it's sales, parts, or service. And we know that and we probably give up some profitability for it. But when you get to my age, what's the extra few dollars amount to as opposed to all your employees doing well? And so we, we do want our employees to live well. We want them to have the nice cars, the nice homes, the nice things, and the vacations. And, and we're proud when they're able to take them because that means we contributed somehow to them. That was all I had for you. Anything else you wanna, we might've missed that you wanna add? No, no, but I think we've talked about a lot. I, no, I, I just, there's so much luck that comes in business too. You know, when you do get a good hire and it works out, sometimes you just get lucky. But I will say this, we're on the lookout for the next level of leadership. Even, even when times you ought to have a hiring freeze, it doesn't mean you have a quality of people freeze. And, and that doesn't mean you're not, I would say to anybody that's on the bottom end of the, in the business, be careful. We, we want to improve that position. And so we, we want to improve the lowest position out there. And we want them better because they have, we expect big decisions out of them. We expect customer reactions and interactions. And we expect that out of them. We expect them to greet them. Uh, when they come in the door and if they've been greeted six times because six different people have seen them and didn't know they was waited on, that's okay. Overdo it. Yeah. So, but those are hard things. All right. Well, All thank right. you, Gary. No, this has been great. Thanks so much to Gary for taking the time to sit down and share his story with us. And another thanks to HBS Systems for making this podcast possible. I'd love to get your feedback on the new series, so drop me a line at kschmidt at lassitermedia.com. You can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn Radio. This will ensure you'll be alerted as soon as new episodes are made. Special thanks to Joe Kinsley and Jeff Lazeski of our multimedia department for putting this together. Thanks for joining us for this one-on-one -on -one conversation with Gary Reynolds. Until next time, I'm Kim Schmidt signing out for our first R Dealer Story podcast.